Amy, we've got a bunch of little nieces and nephews between us, but we've also got a catch-all gift that all of our siblings love for their newborns. You're totally right, and it's Pampers Swaddlers, because Pampers Swaddlers wick wetness away to keep babies drier and subsequently parents happier. Pampers Swaddlers absorb wetness better versus the leading value brand and provide up to 100% leak-proof skin protection and up to 0% skin irritation. Pampers Swaddlers are dermatologist approved by the Skin Health Alliance. They're hypoallergenic and they're free of parabens and latex. Now you can try Swaddlers with new Pampers Free and Gentle Wipes for healthy baby skin. These wipes won't tear. In fact, they grip mess, shall we say, more firmly and clean better, leaving baby skin dry, soft, and smooth. For trusted protection, trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician recommended brand. Download the Pampers Club app today and earn Pampers cash. Redeem your Pampers cash for exclusive Pampers coupon savings and rewards. Only redeemable via Pampers Club. Pampers Cash has no cash value. Hello and welcome to Fresh Take from What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood. This is Margaret. And today I am talking to Dr. Camilo Ortiz. He is a professor in the doctoral psychology program at Long Island University Post. He is the developer of independence theory, a treatment for child anxiety. He runs a psychology practice in New York, but consults with clients around the world. Welcome, Dr. Ortiz. Thank you so much. So I read the article that you co-authored with Lenore Skenazi, who's been a guest on our podcast. And in it, you talk, you start with a story about a 12-year-old child going on a play date a couple doors down. So will you start there with that story for us? This actually is a story that occurred to Lenora, so it's not directly, you know, I have lots of uh, examples of of overparenting and helicopter parenting. But in this story, she had gone a couple doors down on a play date, if I'm remembering correctly. And that is usually enough to trigger what we might call parental pressure, that something has to be done about that, um, as opposed to what used to be done, which is that you would let your kid go a couple doors down and you'd see them in the evening and you wouldn't worry too much about it. Right. And so the story, Lenore's story, is begins with the idea that the other parent then walks this child two doors home. And the idea is just to be safe, right? Which is a phrase that comes up a lot and that we hear a lot that the idea of putting our children's safety is always the right choice. It's like keeping kids safe is our job, which we understand to be a part of our job, but that there is a downside to that idea. So where does that begin? What's kind of off about the idea of our number one job is safety for kids? Yeah, well, let's assume that that's the case, that all we cared about was safety. My contention is that the involvement of parents in everyday activities like walking a couple of houses down actually makes kids less safe in the long term because one way to be safe is to have practice assessing safety and practice in situations that could potentially be unsafe. And if you're doing that for your child throughout their childhood, when you suddenly let them go into the world, they actually don't know how to be safe. Putting that aside, I think that there are some other downsides. And this is actually an interesting point because it's really easy for the human brain to think about 
the bad things that can happen. And we don't think about the other side of the coin, the risks on the other side. And so what we're seeing is that when parents are overly involved in decisions and actions that kids are capable of handling themselves, we are seeing an increase in child anxiety and depression and loneliness. And we can't run experimental studies where we make some parents be helicopterish and some not. And so as a scientist, you know, that's always the gold standard. But the correlations are really suggestive that part of the reason that we're seeing more anxiety in kids is that parents are involving themselves in lots of things that kids are perfectly capable of handling on their own. And is it objectively true? Is the data showing us that we are seeing more anxiety in kids in 2023 than we were? What are we talking, 20 years ago, 40 years ago? What are our markers here? Uh, Pretty stable until about 15 years ago. And then according to many, many outcome measures, we are seeing an increase in anxiety. And it's not just self-reported anxiety. So they do survey research where they ask kids how anxious do you feel today? That we could explain that maybe we're just all more attuned to anxiety and we're actually not more anxious, but we just notice it more. Mm-hmm. We have the language for it, right? Like we're in. But when we look at more objective measures like self-harm, suicide attempts, uh, psychiatric hospitalizations, those all have increased uh, markedly in the last 10 years. And they're not really... Uh, abating those increases. They keep going up. So we're really concerned. And some of the things we point to are environmental, right? That the idea of that we have so much information that the 24-hour cable news system is telling us that there's danger around every corner. What are some of the other kind of society level factors that are making this problem worse? Well, would you count changes in parenting as a society level factor? Well, let's, I think, yes, I would. I think that definitely parenting plays a part in this. I think also there are some factors that are larger than individual parenting choices, such as the rise in information and a sort of societal expectation of how children live that like the pressure to participate in organized activities as opposed to the kind of, all right, everybody get on your bikes and go around town. So yes, I think that certainly there's parental stuff going on, but I also kind of like to start at factors that might be a little bigger than ourselves, because it's not just a question of if I was doing this differently, because I have to really opt out of a lot of stuff to participate in a kind of more what Lenore Skenazi calls free range, right? Aspect of parenting. So yeah. Yeah. One of those factors that we look at is how kids play. And uh, Peter Gray has done a lot of research examining changes in play. And so he has very nicely documented a few things. And one is that play is more structured now than it used to be. So parents step in, and this is related to what I do, and they say, this is what we're going to do, and these are the rules. And, you know, organized sports is a good example of that. So there's less free play happening. And there's a lot of really important stuff that happens when kids are free playing. They will say, This is the game and here's out of bounds and this is this rule and this is how we win. And another kid will say, no, let's do it this way. 
And all of these soft skills of negotiating and controlling your own desires because other people don't want to do the exact thing that you want to do, this is all happening. And this is really important stuff that is happening much less these days. And the other aspect of it is mixed age free play is happening much less than it used to. If we look historically over the last 200 years of how kids used to play, it was always mixed age play. If just watch Little House on the Prairie, there were never kids segregated by age. It was, you know, they all went to the same schoolhouse from kindergarten to 12th grade. And that has its own benefits as well for younger kids and also for older kids. So the older kids learn leadership skills and the younger kids learn how you behave when you're older. And that stuff is just not happening much these days. So we might call that a a societal trend. And putting a fine point on it, the idea of the difference between those two things is that they're in the sort of free play idea, the kids are in charge of everything, in charge of the rules, in charge of keeping people safe or not safe. Whereas in, let's say, a soccer game where there's a coach or there's 16 parents on the sideline, the parents are not only facilitating, but sometimes making those decisions. Not only that, when something goes wrong, the first thing that happens in a structured environment is they go to the parent to act as the arbiter. Whereas when when there are no parents around and you're having free play, you have to figure it out. And that difference is is tremendously important when a parent is not even an option to solve a problem. That's where we get that real growth for kids. Or we can think of it as It has been called the zone of proximal development, to use fancy psychology speak. We love fancy psychology speak here. (laughs) But that's what, when we're pushed a little beyond what we are capable of, is where we see real growth. And with a parent there, we are never pushed. And so then the growth just doesn't happen. Mm, Right. The arbiter is, there's an authority figure who we can always turn to who has the right decisions as opposed to a group of kids. That's right. I think about playing baseball as a kid and it's like, well, that's out or that you're in or out there. We have to figure it out together and that that skill is really useful for kids and that gets lost if they, they are not practicing that muscle of figuring it out for themselves. That's a good way to think about it, the analogy of a muscle. And then what ends up happening is smaller and smaller disagreements or problems require intervention by a parent. And so we actually don't just make that muscle stronger. It gets weaker over time. And we see some of this. We can, you know, think about what's going on on college campuses. You know, I'm a professor and I see, you know, graduate students who have a hard time handling things not going their way and will bring in a parent. Whereas, you know, 10 or 20 years ago, that would have been unheard of. Right. I am talking to Dr. Camilo Ortiz and we will be right back. Margaret, I've got a go-to baby shower gift that I give whenever there's another newborn in my life. Can you guess what it is? 
Amy, three guesses, first two don't count. It's Pampers Swaddlers. Exactly. Pampers Swaddlers keep baby skin dry, happy, and healthy. Pampers Swaddlers absorb wetness better than the leading value brand and provide up to 100% leak-proof skin protection and up to 0% skin irritation. Pampers Swaddlers are dermatologist-approved by the Skin Health Alliance, hypoallergenic, and free of parabens and latex. Try Swaddlers with new Pampers Free and Gentle Wipes for healthy baby skin. These wipes are five times stronger, gripping mess more firmly, shall we? say, and making diaper changes a breeze. For trusted protection, trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician recommended brand. Download the Pampers Club app today and earn Pampers cash. Then redeem your Pampers cash for exclusive Pampers coupon savings and rewards. Only redeemable via Pampers Club. Pampers cash has no cash value. Amy, when I'm dehydrated, I get headaches. I get cranky and I don't feel good in general. Also, I am dehydrated a lot of the time. <laughs> right. <laughs> because being good with the water bottle is one thing, but getting that sodium and potassium with the fluids, turns out that is the key to saying optimally hydrated. So whether you're looking to hydrate during your workout, while traveling, or at the end of a long night, Sports Research Hydrate Electrolytes have got you covered with over 65 trace minerals, seven essential vitamins, and coconut water powder. Crisp and refreshing without any sugar, this is hydration powered by Sports Research. Each box has 16 little stick packs that you can take on the go, whether you're headed to an exercise class, a night out with friends, or a podcasting conference. And did we mention they come in delicious flavors from raspberry lemonade to cherry pomegranate? Stay hydrated with Sports Research Hydrate Electrolytes. Visit sportsresearch.com and use the code WHATFRESH at checkout for 50% off your purchase of Hydrate. That's S-P-O-R-T-S-R-E-S-E-A-R-C-H.com, sportsresearch.com, and use code WHATFRESH for 50% off your Hydrate Electrolytes order. So. Where is this coming from? How is this developing and why are we changing from the sort of, I mean, I know as a parent why to some degree, because I have tweens now. And one thing is that we live a little farther out of town. So my kids are not particularly safe riding bikes to the places they want to go. I end up driving them places. It's something we're kind of trying to find workarounds for, but some of it is is actual structure that is kind of hard to get around. But also, I think the idea of safety is feels very important, that if I have a group of boys in my backyard and I say, go play, and I turn around and for some reason, it's let's have a can of Coke has become let's hit this can of Coke with a baseball bat towards each other's heads, I suddenly feel like, wait a minute, this is on me. You know, I don't want to be the person with a kid in the backyard going to the ER. And so... Where is the line between sort of personal responsibility, my, okay, I'm going to be free range and let them go, and the messages that I'm getting that, like, I don't want to be the parent with an ER kid during the play date? Yeah. So I've actually gotten messages from urban planners who have suggested that a lot of this is because of bad decisions made about moving people farther and farther away from the center of town. I think that's part of it, but I think the main reason is really that we, it's sort of counterintuitive, because we are safer now, that's the main cause that we are overly worried about safety. And I'll say a little more what I mean about that. So we have this threat detector that's in our skull, and 
uh, if you sort of take a step back and you understand a little bit about evolutionary psychology, we have objectively gotten much safer over time. We don't encounter lions and, and cobras like we used to on the savannas of Africa. But evolutionarily, biology moves really slowly. And so we have all this machinery in our brains that is constantly looking for threats to keep us safe because that's what led our ancestors to procreate is the ones who were anxious, actually, were the ones that were better at surviving and we are the um, benefactors of those genes. And so now that we are safer, our brains are still doing what they're supposed to do, looking for threats, but the bar just comes down on what is considered a threat. And now a disagreement is a threat, whereas it used to be a lion. And so you know, we have to figure out like what to do with these impulses to worry about safety and unfortunately, what I think has happened is that it has turned into over-involved parenting. And if we look at things like the number of hours per week that parents spend with their children, that has doubled since the 60s. And there are some good aspects to that, but there's this big downside that when kids need to explore and need to have challenges, we are always there. And then, you know, we consider it to be good parenting these days to prevent our kids from experiencing what I call the four D's, distress, discomfort, disappointment, and danger. And I think we need to push back that uh, actually good parenting may be allowing kids to experience those things because then they'll get better at handling them. I understand the concept 100%. And I think, I also think there is some, I mean, to some degree, we talk about, and there's so many memes, right, about the 80s childhood, and it's the kid drinking water out of a beer can that he found in the backyard or whatever. Oh, we all survived. We, my husband always says, well, we used to ride in the back. He's from Texas. We used to go to grandpa's in the back of the pickup truck, 10 kids in the back of the pickup. We were fine. And it's like, okay, like, I'm sure 90 for... 5% of you were fine, but like not everybody was fine riding around in the back of the Patricka truck. So certain information we have synthesized, it feels like correctly. Okay, we should be in five-point harness car seats. We should not probably ride down the highway in the back of a pickup truck untethered. So I think the trick of some of this is that that line has gotten so tight. It is hard to make those decision. So what do you say to parents who say, I'm lost in all of this. I'm trying to be a good parent. I'm trying to do it right. Everybody, you know, on my Facebook group is saying, I saw a kid riding without a helmet in downtown. Da, 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 da. And they're, you know, they're trying to help the community stay safe. But how do we find that line between, okay, some of these things are good improvements, but we're crossing the line if we're never letting our children out of our sight. Yeah. Well, one thing I want to make clear is that you know, sometimes it can sound like I'm being critical of parents, but I completely understand the trap that they're in. I think most parents want to allow more independence. And if you look at survey research that asks parents, is independence a good thing? A huge percentage say yes. And so I think the reason that, or one of the reasons is this societal pressure and this reconceptualization of good parenting as being overly involved parenting. So I totally get it. It's a very hard place to be in. And, you know, one of the first parents who went through my independence therapy for their anxious child had to stay home from work the first day when this child was walking home alone from school. 
And I thought this was the height of bravery, actually, that she was, this was so difficult, but she knew that it was the right thing for her child to do. And so she tolerated it. Another distinction, I think, is between physical safety and emotional safety. And so for sure, we want to use seatbelts. I think there's much less of a rationale for never allowing your child to feel disappointed. And I think, you know, there are very few parents who think that that's a great idea for their child to never be disappointed. But, you know, we see this in practice a lot. Distress and disappointment, there's an immediate rush to make those feelings go away. And so I think maybe that's where we can start with some parents who have legitimate physical safety fears is can we intervene less in in these moments and even moments of discomfort. And so I also tell a story. I was at a, a gathering of parents and, and little kids and I saw this little girl trying to pull her sweater off and she kind of as, you know, as two year olds sometimes are prone to do, she got kind of stuck in the neck of it and she's struggling a little bit. And I'm the only person who would notice something like this, but I thought to myself, oh, what a wonderful moment of discomfort because she's going to pull off the sweater and realize that she can tolerate the feeling and she can also make it go away with her own effort. And the parent ran across the room. (laughs) I was going to say, I know how this story ends. And pulled the sweater off and said, are you okay, sweetie? And you know, not terrible. It's not going to harm her, but it, it's a missed opportunity. Right. Not scarred for life. Yeah. And there are a million of those every day where kids are going to feel uncomfortable or one of the four D's that we talk about. And so a first step might just be delaying for a few seconds what you do. So still do the same thing you're going to do, but just delay for five seconds. And what you will notice is sometimes in just five seconds, kids figure it out and then you don't have to do anything. And then maybe we can go to 10 seconds or 15 seconds. I really like that idea of a starting point because I do feel like sometimes this conversation gets really quickly into like, you know, my sister-in-law tells a story of, oh, when I was a kid, I used to climb this tree and I was 20 feet off the ground. I would have to lose contact with the tree for a minute to get to this branch and that. And I'm like, uh, I don't think I can handle that. I don't think I can handle it. It's too far down the road. But I like that distinction. And I haven't heard it said so concisely before between emotional danger and physical danger. And some of the stuff is physically dangerous. And the reality is I had an issue with uh, a school that my kids were at where they sent out a alert about an internet danger that I knew to be an internet hoax. So I reached out to the school and I said, actually, just so you know, this is not a thing. It's an internet hoax. And the response from the school was, well, it's best to be careful. Like it's best to be cautious. And I thought, well, that's not right. Like it's not always best to be cautious because we're giving kids, there's plenty of stuff kids should be worried about, but they shouldn't actually be worried about this fake online thing. That's not real. There's a price to pay. Right. And I think that that kind of distinction, it's just constantly muddy in our minds, the idea of like, well, what can it hurt? It feels like we're scaring them with the wrong things sometimes, but then not giving them the opportunity to be scared by things that are actually scary. And so let's think about what that does. If we are constantly scaring parents and kids with things that are actually not real, then they lose the ability to some degree to be able to differentiate real danger, real fears from ones that are less dangerous or not at all. And that's the point we made at the beginning, which I think it makes us actually less safe when we do that. 
We're going to take a break. I'm talking to Dr. Camilo Ortiz. And after this break, I want to talk about what therapies and action items we have for kids who are in this anxiety already. Amy, you know me well enough to know that my daily power breakfast is toast with peanut butter on top. Toast with peanut butter. It's also, by the way, one of my favorite power breakfasts. We agree on that thing. We were recently together and we shared some toast with peanut butter. And I'm going to tell you, we used Hero Bread. It adds even more protein and fiber to that combo without adding any more sugar. Hero Bread has remade the carby, empty calorie bread products into versions that include no net carbs, zero gram sugar, and fewer calories, plus more protein and fiber, while still being super fluffy and delicious. I was not sure that that particular combination was going to be possible, but Hero Bread has figured it out. Yeah, this is one I'm glad they let us try. It's like, it really tastes good. I've been trying to add more protein to my diet, and I would have thought that a hamburger rolls was not the place to do that, Amy. <laughs> but all of Hero Bread's products, from rolls to tortillas to croissants, we please, offer protein and fiber, zero to one grams of net carbs, and zero grams of sugar. Start your Hero Bread bundle on their website and get 10% off your order. Go to Hero.co and use the code MOTHERHOOD at checkout. I like this bread, people. It's H-E-R-O dot C-O and code MOTHERHOOD for 10% off your order of Hero Bread. Margaret, I've been at the research again, looking into metabolic health and more importantly, metabolic flexibility, which turns out is the key to improved energy levels, better sleep, better fitness, all the things. And I found out about all this because we got a chance to try Lumen, the first handheld device that helps you manage your metabolic health. Lumen works when you breathe into it. If you do that first thing in the morning or after a workout, Lumen measures your metabolism by measuring the amount of carbon dioxide in your breath. It's science, people. That lets you see exactly what's going on in your body in real time. Then you use Lumen's app to get tailored guidance to improve your sleep, your nutrition, even stress management. If you're interested in figuring out the effects of different sorts of foods on your body, Lumen is a really cool way to see what's actually happening as your body burns different Different fuel sources. If you want to take the next step in improving your health, go to lumen.me and use Fresh to get $100 off your Lumen. That is L U M E N dot M E. Lumen.me and use the code Fresh at checkout for $100 off. Thank you, Lumen, for sponsoring this episode. So you work a lot with anxious kids. And I think for those of us listening who are saying, okay, I'm in it. I might've missed some of the boats. We're going to change some of the behavior and how we're causing this. But I have a kid. First of all, I want to say, is anxiety, as we say, baked in the cake? Is it something that is just, you know, in the DNA somehow for some kids and not others? I have three kids and I can answer this question for you if you need help. But Tell me your thoughts first. <laughs> this is going to sound like a cop-out answer, but the research suggests that it's about 50% genetic and 50% environmental. That tracks. I think that tracks. Yeah. So for sure, we see kids that are timid, even as toddlers. And then we see the converse, like kids. some kids are thrill seekers and don't really care if they're near their parents and will run out into the street uh, searching stimulus. You see those kids at Olympics times during the parent interviews. There was like this kid started jumping off the roof at two and now they're a ski board, you know, or whatever, snowboard acrobat, you know. 
That's right. And and also from an evolutionary perspective, it makes sense that some kids are like that because they were the ones who tended to do some of the risky stuff that could keep the tribe safe. And then we had some some more timid kids who were kind of looking out for danger. So we actually need all of that. And so your work is based in, I believe, cognitive behavioral therapy, correct? And that's that's a term we've heard before on the podcast, but walk us through it again for people who aren't super familiar with that term. Yeah, so it's baked right into the term itself. So cognitive means that we work on what people think because we know that there's a connection between what you believe, what you think, and how you feel and your behavior. So the standard approach would be to teach a child to notice a thought of danger and not treat it immediately like a fact, but look at the evidence. Sometimes that thought is accurate, sometimes it's not. And so can we come up with a more fact-based thought? So if a child thinks every dog is super dangerous, in therapy, we might say, well, let's examine that. Let's be scientists about it. And eventually, over time, we can teach a child to notice that thought and then maybe ask themselves what evidence they have. So the next term is the behavioral part, which is actually a more effective aspect of CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy. And that typically means exposing oneself to the thing that makes you anxious a lot. And so that tends to make us less anxious. And we all know that to be true. That's not rocket science, but it's hard to do that with your own child. And so a therapist can be really useful in that way. So if a child is scared of spiders, we might look at videos of spiders and eventually we might work our way up to handling a tarantula. (laughs) No, thank you. I'll skip that day. But here's the thing that a lot of kids don't want to do that because it's basically saying to someone, what's your worst fear? Okay, let's do a lot of that. After a long day of school, let's drive to this office and practice being terrified of something. And so here's where my independence therapy, I think, is an important improvement on typical exposure therapy, which is that I don't ask kids, what are you afraid of? I ask kids, what are things that you'd like to do independently? And all of them will name things. And then with parents' consent, we will go about doing those things. So every day, what I call mega doses of independence, we do at least one independence activity. And the theory is that even though these things are unrelated on the surface to their fears, so no one's picking, let's go play with spiders as an independence activity if they're actually afraid of spiders. They're picking, I want to go to the supermarket and buy a few things that I can then cook for my family. You know, we have some middle schoolers who are doing that. We are finding that when kids can do these things, they actually become less afraid of spiders. And you might say, well, how is that possible? You're not even interacting with a spider. And the reason is because they're learning fundamental things about their own ability to tolerate discomfort and distress, to be effective in the things that they do. And that transfers to things that kids are afraid of. So we had a little girl, she was nine years old, lived in Brooklyn, took the bus to school by herself in the morning. She had never slept in her own bed. That night, without saying a word to anybody, came home from school and felt like a grown-up from having done that and slept in her own bed. And we never said, hey, why don't you sleep in your own bed, which is what exposure therapy typically would do. And so that's what I think is the really important part of independence therapy is everyone wants to do it. And it seems to have pretty similar effects. We've only done 
one study so far, but the results show equal outcomes to cognitive behavioral therapy and to medication, but much faster than we would expect with those. And also much more you know, fun. (laughs) Yeah. It makes sense too, because one of the things that people ask a lot on the podcast is self-esteem. Like how I always say people think self-esteem is like a box in a woods and you've got to find the map and go and open the self-esteem box. It's out there somewhere. And that I think in having so many conversations on the podcast that I had a kid who during the pandemic decided he wanted to learn how to do a front flip. And I and normally I would have been like, we're, we're busy. We've got activities. And it was the best thing this child ever did for themselves. Just we got a little set of math that had some air in it. And he just went out every day and worked on it and worked on it. And it's kind of dangerous. Like, could you land wrong and really hurt yourself? You certainly could. But he was determined to do it. And It's like the John Lennon quote, life is what happens to you when you're busy making other plans. I feel like self-esteem is what happens to kids when you're not desperately in the woods looking for the box, right? Like finding some sort of internal dependence, like an ability to depend on yourself. So did you help him with that or he did that on his own? I I don't know how to do a front flip. He did it on his own. (laughs) He figured it out. Can I steal that one? Because I love that as an independence activity. It hits all the check marks. And the main one is that he wanted to do that. And I bet he felt amazing when he finally figured it out. He did. He really did. And it it really was born of just a lot of boredom. And we often say on the podcast, like, don't be afraid of boredom. Boredom is a gift. And and somewhere out beyond boredom is good things happen. But I think it can be different, too. I have boys and girls. And I find that I'm sometimes easier on my boys with their independence. Whereas I worry more about my daughter, you know, walking into town and, and just the harassment. And I just feel like, Oh, I don't want her to have to deal with that. But it is, I went to a Catholic school and I had hand me down uniforms and I had a really short Catholic school girl skirt. And I used to walk home along a basically highway access route. And I, I laugh with my mom, like, was that a great idea sending me walking down the street in a short Catholic schoolgirls uniform? Like I got a lot of comments. And so I, I debate a little bit the thing of like, yes, to a certain degree, it made me pretty able to handle catcalling and nonsense from people. And it was scary and upsetting to me, but it, it certainly worked the muscle of like, okay. But I wonder how you think about that in terms of ways that we struggle with this independence because maybe it echoes in us something that like, I really don't want my daughter getting catcalled. That seems really like not an appealing and not a useful part of being alive. Well, it makes so much sense that there might be that there are sex differences in some of the things that we would encourage in kids. Two thoughts come to mind. And one is that an independence activity doesn't mean a solitary activity. And so as long as parents are not there, there can be 50 kids there we don't mind. That counts. So that might be a way to reduce some of the real danger that you're describing. That's really smart. And and the other thing is independence activities are picked by kids because they're fun or exciting or challenging. I don't think anyone would pick wearing a Catholic school (laughs) uniform and walking home alone. Right. As an independence activity. Yes. That was picked for me for the record. (laughs) Right. So those would be the the two differences. I think another thing I want to touch on before we go about anxiety is 
the idea of like mixed age groups and stuff. My oldest son is very involved in scouting and there's a lot of great stuff in scouting that echoes a lot of this work of like mixed groups and independence and having to do things for yourself. There is, I think, in mixed groups, especially mixed gender mixed groups, a little bit of a who are these kids? Like I don't, I want to somehow vet this experience so that I know that nobody's in over their head with a kid they can't handle or a bullying situation. What role does like vetting and bullying, is that part of the problem, this idea that I can somehow make it safe if I know everybody involved and I know they're going to behave correctly? I get a little lost in that one too. Yeah, I think that's just fine as long as when the kids are actually hanging out, you're not there. So if you want to do a little bit of vetting beforehand and, you know, some smart people have said that the main way that parents actually affect their child's development is by helping them pick the right friends. And that makes sense. I guess, you know, the devil's in the detail. So what kind of level of vetting are we talking about here? It's okay if there is, you know, uh, a harsh word here or there, or there's some disagreement. You know, bullying is more a sustained relationship between people of different levels of power. So, you know, one time a, a kid going to a park and getting pushed by another kid is not the end of the world. It certainly happened to me a lot as a child, and I learned from that. Right, right. You can figure, I guess it's the ability, the trust to say you can figure out the situation. And then if there needs to be some correction, or if I need to get involved at some point, you can always come get me, but I'm not there intervening before anything bad happens. Beautifully put. Thank you. So tell us a little bit about your work. People are listening. They're like, I'm in. I want to do this. Does it involve, do they have to take a child to see a therapist? Is this a personal, where can someone who wants to start this journey of giving their kids a little bit more independence and, and starting to dabble a little with the independence idea? Where do they go from here? A few places. So they can go to my website. It's just my name, drcamiloortiz.com. And if they want some consultation with a professional, but if they want to just sort of start on their own, dipping their toe into some of these things, uh, webs Lenore Skenazy's website, letgrow.org is a great place with resources, including my treatment manual for clinicians, which is free. So if you're a clinician, you can go there and download it. And it tells you exactly what to say in, in each of the five sessions. So this is a short treatment. They can follow me on Twitter. I talk a lot about independence as opposed, and some other things as well. The New York Times article is also a great place to start. We give some examples there. But if you don't want to do any of these things, and I certainly don't think everyone needs to be talking to a therapist all the time, you can really just sit down with your child and say, ask them one question. What are some things that you'd like to do independently? And then as long as they're reasonable to you, and I never tell parents, what they should allow or shouldn't, see if you can do some of those things. Um, and it really can start with chopping vegetables uh, when you're in the next room. We just don't want you to be right there. So whatever it is they want to do, they should just be on their own or with other kids. Siblings are fine. Cosign. I really enjoyed this conversation. Thanks so much for talking to me today. Me too. Thanks so much. And we will link to all of uh, the links that we talked about, including the New York Times article and Lenore Skenazy's uh, episode of our podcast in the show notes. Thanks so much. Thank you.
Margaret, it's an exciting news day. An exciting news day indeed, Amy. A few years ago, we launched our first spinoff podcast, Toddler Purgatory, hosted by the hilarious Blair Brooks and Molly Lloyd. And guess what? Now, Blair and Molly are back with their all-new podcast, Unsticking It. You know Blair and Molly as two busy moms and actors, and somewhere between potty training and the pandemic, they both felt like they lost their creative kaboom. In their new podcast, Unsticking It, they are going to talk about how all of us can get back to what lights us up after motherhood. Amy, I need this. Me too. And Blair and Molly will be talking to fellow imaginative minds. We're talking actors, artists, and creators of all kinds about how we can all unstick ourselves from whatever muck we're stuck in. Follow, subscribe, and listen to Unsticking It wherever you get your podcasts. That's Unsticking It with Blair and Molly, because sometimes life stucks. No one told us the truth about parenthood. Why? This is the podcast everyone needed before they had kids because now that those little ones are here, whew, there is a lot to unpack. I'm Rachel Shepardota, and I am your host for the podcast, No One Told Us, where we tell the truth about parenting and let you in on all the stuff you really should have known about before having kids. I am the founder of Hey Sleepy Baby, but this podcast is so much more than sleep. We'll be diving into all the topics that you really care about and need to know while you do your best job raising those adorable, tidy humans. Our goal is to just make you feel less alone and less overwhelmed. There are so many things that no one tells us before becoming a parent, and I think that we should really pull back the curtain on becoming a first-time or second-time mom or dad to share the good, the bad, and the ugly. We'll have a little education, a little fun, and a whole lot of heart that goes into each and every episode. So join me and our amazing guests each week to hear us talk about what no one told us.